John, why don't you, um, why don't you, uh, for the listeners, why don't you explain what your title is and what it is that you do for a living? Sure. Um, I am the director uh, at uh, Fellowship Church in Monrovia, and I'm the director of the Center for Racial Reconciliation. And so, um, so my job and my task is to lead our congregation and the larger community in conversations of race, racism and uh, reconciliation and justice. Great. Great. And how long have you been doing this work? So I've been on staff almost four years. I can't believe it's been that long. It feels like I just started last week. (laughs) And you have a and your background is in law, right? You're a a lawyer, right? Right, right. Yeah. I practiced law for a little over 24 years before I switched over and came on staff at Fellowship. So what I try to do is to bring um, kind of the legal background, the analytical skills, hopefully uh, the compassion uh, to this conversation. Great. Okay. So why don't you, I mean, we, we talked, we, we talked about uh, in last week's episode, we talked about, you know, the um, we talked about many uh, Minneapolis and the, the fallout of Minneapolis and sort of what's going on right now. And so our listeners, if they've listened to the last episode, should be pretty up to date with everything going on. So um, if it's okay with you, um, I mean, I do want to get your reaction to sort of what's going on culturally right now. Um, But I kind of want to, I think for the purposes of this conversation, you know, and the purposes of, you know, not beating a dead horse, uh, I think I want to give some uh, broader perspective and maybe talk more about sort of racism and and race in America, sort of as like a concept and, and get your get your opinions on some things, but we can start with, with Minneapolis and then broader, um, in terms of the reactions and the protests and, and sort of what is your reaction to this moment that's going on right now in American history? Yeah. Um, I definitely have a lot of thoughts on, on all of this. Um, my initial reaction with what happened in Minnesota is pretty much the reaction that I have when, whenever we have, um, unarmed black men or black women who are killed by the police and and that is um that there's there's a long history of this and so it's not just um like just one bad apple uh i i generally think that there's an issue with uh the way that we police in general um and then Uh and then specifically the way that uh black and brown communities are policed specifically so what do you think it is about uh, because I mean of course we know that um, uh, whatever we want to call it unlawful treatment of black people the uh, you know the unjust treatment of black people the the um, uh, disproportionate use of violence and force towards black people and and largely people of color is not a it's not unique to policing it's not a uh, you know it, <laughs> it's not something that solely exists in policing but I think in in 2020. Uh, uh, it seems to be trending more and more so from law enforcement and things like that. What, so what, what do you think it is about policing in, in its current form in the United States that lends itself or, or at least, um, allows for, um, these trends to continue? What do you, what do you think it is about policing? Yeah, I, um, I, I think initially just historically how policing was formed, um, and mm-hmm. both, both in the South and in the North and specifically the Northeast, like places like New York, Philadelphia, um, mm-hmm. they, they uh, oftentimes police, um, were organized for the purpose of keeping, 
uh, and I'm going to talk mostly uh, in terms of black and white for, for a moment, um, for black communities to uh, basically stay in their community. And so if if it's in the Northeast or the West, it is uh, we don't want you to be in white neighborhoods. And so we're going to keep you there. And if it's if it's the South, we want to continue the institution of superiority and inferiority um, because there's a much larger African-American population in the South. So policing tends to be a little bit different, but a lot of it is to not to serve and protect, but a lot of it is to uh, serve and protect white communities. It's not really to help black communities. Um, have you had an opportunity to... Um to have conversations about these types of things with law enforcement? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I have. Yeah. I mean, there have been times I've been on panels having these specific conversations uh, mm. about how to improve race relations, how to improve uh, police uh, community relations. So, yes, I have. What do you see as the biggest hurdle for overcoming um, racial bias in policing? Well, I, I think a big part of it, probably twofold. One is some really good, having some really good implicit bias training. Uh, but in addition to the to the training, there needs to be better uh, community relationships with the with um, the police between the police and black communities. And what I mean by that is more than just kind of photo ops. There needs to really be uh, community oriented policing that goes on, uh, where primary stakeholders in these communities uh, really get an opportunity to talk with the police and for the police to listen, to really listen to what the concerns are of the black community. So, so, so there's that component, but there's a larger issue at play mm -hmm. here, which is, which is not just the police, but it's um, just a historic uh, systemic racism that's occurred in our country um, where laws and rules are either established to favor uh, white folks over people of color or in its application, they are applied differently between those two communities. Definitely, definitely. So um, when it comes to the idea of 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 racial bias and so my my whole opinion on race and i touched on this last week on the podcast but um i, I think race uh in terms of skin color and physical attributes um uh i don't know if you listen to uh if you listen to you pay attention to sam harris at all i haven't uh, heard of sam harris i'm sorry okay no it's fine uh uh basically uh his opinion on race is that skin color has to become in order for us to really move beyond racism skin color has to become as interesting as hair color in terms of how descriptive it is of an individual and their personality and things like that and i tend and i tend and i tend to agree with that that um that line of thought um you know someone's skin color shouldn't tell you anything uh, you know, compelling or, or allow you to assume anything compelling about a person's personality. But I'm of two minds because I think you, the United States in particular has a unique history with race. And the, the fact that this country was built uh, from the very, from the very beginning on, you know, this notion of race and skin color making a difference that like, I think it has become a self-fulfilling prophecy where, you know, because we have been forcibly, you know, divided am among racial lines, we've, we've, you know, we've had to embrace that. And so, um, you know, I think, you know, to dismiss race, um, might, I I'm fearful that to dismiss race might mean to, 
um, sort of dismiss um, the importance of the things that um, have come out of um, racial divides that we find valuable. Um, like what happens to all the art and the culture and the food and the fashion and all of that that has come out of, um, uh, if whether directly or indirectly, um, b- people groups being divided a- among similar um, ethnic, you know, physical tributes and th- uh, uh, attributes and things like that. So I, I guess talk, I guess talk about that kind of react to what, what do you think happens to, you know, race based cultures and things like that? Like, how do we move forward with those things? And does, you know, does eliminating racism and, and sort of minimalizing the importance of, of race, does that uh, you know, for the back, lack of a better phrase, does that throw the baby out with the bathwater? Um, yeah, um, yeah, I think that's an interesting uh, proposition, and and to an extent, I agree with it. Last year, I had the opportunity to go um, to Paris uh, for vacation mm-hmm. with my wife, and all right, we get it, it, John. You got money, we get it. No, 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 we don't have money. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still paying for that trip. What you talking about? <laughs> But but John's John's like, look, if there's one thing I want your audience to know is that I'm not broke. All right. I got bread. (laughs) The revolution will not be televised, but it will be international (laughs) on first class flights. Absolutely. But the thing that I found fascinating with France is that Uh they have moved to what you and Sam um, kind of purport, which is if we make skin color just as uh, exciting as hair color, um, then that would undercut a lot of the, uh, the the issues that we have. However, and so what they've done in France is when they take uh, the census, they do not go like how many black French people do we have? How many white French people do we have? Everyone in France is considered French. And so so all that being said, though, when you really look around and talk to um, talk to people who are in France, there still is a major, major disparity between white French people and black French people. Um, and it makes it even harder for, for black French people to bring up claims, legal claims of discrimination uh, in the French legal system because they don't take race into account. And so it becomes harder to prove that, hey, I'm being discriminated on the basis of my skin color. So 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 I think um, while I agree that there needs to be that the color of your skin needs to be just kind of a nominal issue, the problem is power. And so and the problem is who holds power and how do they wield power and who makes Mm -hmm. who has the power to make laws and enforce laws. And so um, so so I, I think that initial issue is if you don't attack the issue of power, uh, then you're still going to have issues despite the fact that you don't look at don't look at skin color. And so like Shakespeare said, a rose by any other name by any other name is still a rose. And so you might not look at the, the skin color, but you still know who's in power and who's not in power, who has advantages and who's disadvantaged. So that's the answer. To the first part of your question. The second part dealt with culture. Um, if you don't address power, I still think that that the issue of culture still will go forward. There are brilliant people in France, black people in France, who are creating amazing uh, black art, black music, and all those things. I think the same thing would happen here in the States if we decided to say we're truly going to be uh, a colorblind society. 
And and do you do you think that is the goal to ultimately get to a point where we're you know quote unquote colorblind? No, I don't. I, I actually I think that is not the goal, and that's not what Dr. King purported. I think the goal is for us to be able to um, for for each people group to be able mm-hmm. to fully and freely express their culture and their customs, but to be able to do so still living with other folks and for the for all of us to be able to appreciate that and to be become better people as a result of the differences that uh, that naturally exist within different people groups. That is interesting. I, I think the the idea of power and, and that, that whole conversation is an interesting one because I, I see a lot of people online, um, you know, saying that. <laughs> that you know uh racism is is not necessary necessarily a problem because you know there are examples of people who um are able to you know do whatever they want and we you know we're at we're at a point in history where it, it i think we're it's the you know it's the safest point in human history you know more people are thriving on the planet than ever have um but i i do think there is still a, a large hurdle because the people in power, um, if 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 the if the if not just the people in power, but if the you know the systems in place um, that you know control the power of you know the the way people are stratified in the United States still reinforce you know racial lines, then I mean racism is still a problem even if you don't experience it every day. So I think that's a that's a really interesting point. Mm, good, yeah, yeah. So, so, what do you see as the way? Um, what do you see as the solution to um, power dynamics that are based on racial lines. How do we, how do we move beyond that? And how do we, you know, uh, you know, when you get into people get scared, uh, in America, when you start talking about restructuring and, and, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, what's the word, um, redistrib- reparations and redistrib- re- redistributing, uh, power and the redistribution and all of that. So what do you see as the way forward of, uh, you know, uh, dealing with the power dynamics that are b- still based on racial lines and how do we move forward with that? Yeah, I think um, I actually think that there needs to be some sort of component of repair. And so I, mm-hmm. I tend to stay away from the term reparations because it is such, uh, you know, a volatile kind of in terms of argument and dialogue uh, word. Um, but I think it's really clear that there has to be components of if we're going to fix something, we need to look at who broke it. Um and how we're going to go forward is that there has to be some element of repair. You have to put people back into a position of where they were prior to the conflict. And so it becomes difficult, obviously, when you're dealing with people, um, different personalities, you deal with issues of class and you have uh, upper middle uh, working class and lower class blacks and whites. And so if you start talking about repair and doing things to um forward in advanced society that's going to benefit black people, then they're going to be middle and lower class white people are going to say, hey, that's not fair because we're not doing well either. So mm-hmm. so um, so it's it's an incredibly messy situation, but I think we always need to be striving for um, bettering our society, but you cannot just better society simply by... Um, saying I'm sorry and then that's it. There has to be more than than a request for forgiveness. There has to be more than a couple of meals and coffees together with black and white folks and, and other folks 
you know, other ethnicities as well. So it becomes extremely difficult, but you do need to work toward it um, by having these real conversations of how are we going to repair this. So, for example, uh, repair and education um, by providing scholarships. If you don't want to give direct dollars or you don't want to do anything like that, um, if we're looking at like education, then let's how do we make schools and communities that are disadvantaged um, better? Uh, how do we put real resources there that? Um, that help those communities. And so, so it's just a really, uh, a very tough thing, but, uh, that's one way of doing it as well as in it, rather in addition to having conversation, cause that's what most people want to do. I just want to talk about it. I don't really want right. to do anything. I just want to talk. Right. So what do you, how do you feel about, um, universal basic income as a part of the solution of bringing sort of equity financially to, um, to you know, oppress people groups. Yeah, uh, let me ask a question before I answer. I want to make sure we're, okay. we're 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 on the same page with terms because mm -hmm. that's another reason why I think we get stuck. So when you say universal basic income, what do you mean by that? I mean universal basic income, um, similar to what was presented by you know Andrew Yang and and some of the um, uh, progressive uh, presidential candidates this year. This idea of of cover of we all collectively covering the cost of each other's basic needs in terms of shelter, food, things like that with some court, some sort of, you know, flat, whatever it is, whether it's $1,200, $1,000, whatever it is. I don't, you know, I'm not the mathematician to figure that out, but, um, as a way to provide a stable foundation, because uh, just to give you a little bit of background of, of why I even, um, am thinking about that, because I think about, I think about the role of society and sort of the role of the government as a, as uh, the, the I think the duty of living in a society is to mitigate bad luck. I think there's a layer of bad luck that permeates, you know, existence, um, whether, you know, being born to this family versus that family, being born at this point in history versus that point in history, um, you know, being born into a single parent household, you know, there's a there's always going to be a number of. Um, things, a number of factors that contribute to how you're raised and then how, and then what kind of adult you become that you have zero control over. And I think the reason we come together as a society, whether we're hunters and gatherers, you know, on the Sahara or we're, you know, in a city in Los Angeles, the reason we come together as a society is to try to work collectively to mitigate as many instances as bad, of bad luck as possible. And I think universal basic income in 2020 like in at this point in US history seems like the most effective and most fair way to mitigate some of the most foundational instances of of bad luck that we see i don't think anyone should because i i like to imagine like how 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 much how much more um effective and productive and creative uh, uh, a person might be if in their upbringing, because I'm not even talking about the current generation. I'm talking about if we were to start universal basic income tomorrow, the, the next generation, the generation after that, how, how, how much more effective and productive and creative the, the future generations could be if their parents don't have to worry about where the next meal is coming from, or don't have to worry about where they're going to live. Uh, how much more productive and creative, you know, how much more would we innovate, um, across, across cultural and, and ethnic lines? Um, if, if we didn't have to spend 40 hours a week 
going to work just to live, you know, and I, and I see that I see that as it, it could, you know, a lot of people don't like reparations because it 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 only accounts. It, it's a slippery slope when you get into who's who is black. And I think it, reparations reparations across racial lines it, to me almost seems counterintuitive to what we're trying to get to in terms of, a you know, a post racist society like to, to try to say, well, this person's black enough to get a reparation, but this person isn't seems to be like the conversation we shouldn't be having. Um, I think and, and now in 2020, like. I think because uh, I think so, I think the the melding of, of, of society and becoming a more cosmopolitan place has had. Um, positive effects and negative effects. I think one of the negative effects is now the 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 uh, effects of oppression by the power by the powerful have affected more than just colored people. Uh, it is it's affecting everyone. So uh, I think reparations to just people who fall into a s- certain racial category is not necessarily the way to go. But some some kind of universal basic income that that seeks to mitigate the bad luck uh, 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 across racial lines, I think is is a is a good starting point. Um, just just as an investment for the future. Now, do you see that uh, in the way that I've described it as, as potentially a part of, you know, the repairing process? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of like how much how much more creative can someone be if they're not worried, if they're not hungry and worried about where their next meal is going to come from? Right. So so so, no, I, I completely agree that. And and that there needs to be some sort of social contract with uh, with society that says we want everyone to thrive, um, right. and we're going to do as much as we possibly can to make that happen. And so, um, so no, I I think the as you described it or defined it, yeah, I agree with that. That that can be an incredible way to. Um, to help society. I think the thing that we need to be careful of, though, is that if let's let's say we go with what Andrew Yang was talking about, I think he was saying two thousand dollars to every family, um, uh, that we have to make sure that industries don't inflate the cost of goods and services right. that that basically renders the, the money that people are getting null and void. And so there needs to be there needs to be that component of people having money to be able to buy their their basic needs, but also um, industry has to make sure that we're still not going to continue to perpetuate the problems by, like I said, inflating um, uh, prices for goods and services. Totally. And I think he even he even um, proposed some moving to like a uh, uh, like supplementing the dollar with some kind of like social um, economy, some sort of some kind of social currency that, um, you know, has buying power in the in the market, but isn't necessarily a dollar that would incentivize companies to hike up prices and stuff like that. Um, but, yeah, that's it's yeah, it's, it's an interesting conversation um, surrounding UBI. Um, so I, I had a question. So, uh, I think I was having a conversation with a buddy of mine the other day and, uh, you know, the thought occurred to me, like, are, is, is anyone talking? So there's, this is a twofold thing. Cause I think, and this is going to sound kind of weird, but, and it may sound, uh, uh, funny at first, but I think we can't forget to talk to white people. Uh, in 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 times like this, uh, and I and I don't know who's talking to white people, but uh, I think they're it, like 
what what I'm seeing a lot happening online is that um, a lot of uh, a lot of white people are using their voices to speak out with uh, people of color in this time, and then they're using their platforms to amplify black voices and things. That's great. Um, but what I think can't happen is white people become simply like cheerleaders uh, for black people on the sidelines, and then white people not address. Um, the work that they need to do because i think that's an important thing and it's not just work they need to do you know for other people but it's work that white people need to do for themselves that i don't know anyone is having those particular conversations because i was i was i was talking to my buddy and i was like i think the problem and i john i'm not a historian all right but uh and and I'm I'm gonna say something right now that you're not gonna like, and it's probably gonna make you uh, uh, cry a tear. Is I really don't like to read, John. Oh, you're killing me. <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry. Like I like information. I love knowledge. I just I I I loathe books. Like I loathe sitting there and having to read pages. I listen to audiobooks um, and podcasts and things like that. But sitting and reading books on a page just I don't know. Maybe it's my I may have ADD or something like that. But I just I just can't do it. Look, audiobooks, audiobooks. Look, I I am a big proponent of learning and whatever yeah. method works for you, I am all for it. I read, I listen to audiobooks, I watch, mm-hmm. I you know, I do I try to do as much as possible. So when you say you don't read and I'm using air quotes, you really do read because you're listening to books. Right. So right. so yeah, so let's make right. sure your audio we're going to keep you we're going to keep you honest aside. <laughs> but but anyway, I think the crux of what I'm saying is I think the issue with race in America, the issue with race is whiteness. And, um, and I think white, and when I say whiteness, I don't mean being someone with white skin. I mean, whiteness as a concept, um, because or whiteness as an identity, I guess is a better way to put it, to be as clear as possible. Uh, because I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but the white identity, it, it seems to be born of insecurity. Uh, and this idea of the need to otherize people um, and the and the need to be able to distinguish people as not 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 necessarily to distinguish yourself, but to distinguish people as not you. And I think any identity based on, you know, having to make someone less or different than you is is bound to come with some destructive ideologies out of that. Um, so, I mean, I guess speak to that, because I think uh, that moving forward, um, there's going to have to be a sort of. A, a, a white renaissance in the sense of like i think white people are going to have to in a post-racist society where being white or being not black or not of color is not enough to identify as you know anymore like if that i think white people have to do the hard work of like finding an identity and 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 identifying in ways that are healthier than just saying, well, I'm a part of the group that isn't black or isn't Jewish or isn't that, you know what I mean? So, I mean, I guess speak to that because I I think that sort of that white um, security or white fragility, whatever you want to call it, I think it it permeates not just, you know, cultural identities and and, and issues like that, but I think it's at the the heart of, you know, violence by white people against people that are of color and, and police brutality. And then, I mean, we can get into guns because I think it's, uh, I talk about this on online all the time. I think the issue of guns in America is directly um, related to whiteness uh, and sort of that the the insecurity that the the um, identity of whiteness is created around. But I guess react to any of those points. Yeah. No, no, that you, you said a lot. So so let me address um, 
the whiteness component and i'm glad you you kind of fleshed that out a little bit because i think a lot of times people will throw around terms and not define them again right. me as a former lawyer i'm always going to say you have to tell me what you mean by what you're saying and so <laughs> so so you're right that there is this this notion or this concept of whiteness as an identity and mm-hmm. many many um really super smart uh, sociologists and historians have written about it. I think of W.E.B. Du Bois uh, as one of the first people to actually articulately and clearly write about the wages of whiteness. That was an article that he, or a book that he had written. And so, so, so there is this notion that if you're white by definition, then you are entitled to these benefits. And so historically, how that's worked out, and then we'll come up to the present, but historically mm-hmm. how that's worked out is you had um, different Im- uh, European immigrants who came to this country who suffered their first generation as an Italian or as an Irish person, but who, as time moved on, were able, because of their skin color, to morph into uh, society and be named or declared white and that Mm -hmm. being declared white comes with a whole backpack full of advantages um, and opportunities and so the thing about it is is that uh, people of color uh, Asians who came to this country um, uh, Latinx folks who came to this country uh, from South America and and the such um, they were not afforded those same opportunities because of their skin mm-hmm. color, because skin color is so easily identifiable. And so, um, but what's interesting with that is that you had um, landmark Supreme Court cases where a Southeast um, Asian man um, whose name was Thind, that's the last name and that's the court case, who actually applied to become declared white. And the Supreme Court said, no, we're not going to allow you to become white. And he says, wait, I should be white because I'm actually from the Caucasus Mountains. I'm from, uh, so I am a true uh, Caucasian by the scientific, and I'm using air quotes, scientific Mm. definitions of that time. Uh, There was a Japanese man, uh, Azawa, who also filed a Supreme Court case who wanted to be declared because he was Asian to be deemed white. So to me, there's two things going on there. One, there's Mm. this this clear understanding by all of society in America that to be non-white means you have less, that you're entitled to less. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's fascinating how uh, this Southeast Asian man and this Japanese uh, American man, how they were trying to lose their ethnic identity so that they can get the benefits uh, and rewards that are put forth in this and that are provided in this country. And so so that whole notion of whiteness is, is fierce. And and you have so, black folks who are trying to do that as well. But go ahead. Right. So I, I just want to I don't want to distract too long, but I just wanted to jump in there because there are voices from from, you know, uh, like the Candace Owens of the world who would say that to Im- that that notion you know, especially in 2020 is not valid and it's it's a myth. And as Americans, we're just as free to pursue, you know, whatever as anyone else and to embrace the idea that to be non-white means you're entitled to less. Um, 
is 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 playing into a victim mentality or something like that. How would you how would you respond to those those claims? Yeah, I uh, respectfully reject that notion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think the problem with that argument is that, yeah, if you look at the laws um, of our country on its face, on their face, yeah, it's it's uh, race neutral. And yes, everyone has opportunities to pursue and to do whatever they want to do in this country. However, there are clear um, studies that show that there still are um, implicit and explicit bias uh, against people of color. There are great tests, um, studies that were done is Malcolm, I think it's, uh, it's Jamal and uh, Lakeisha more employable than Greg and Nancy. And, and, and there's studies that show that if you send resumes with black, and I'm using, again, air quotes, black-sounding names uh, and resumes and compare them with resumes of white-sounding names that, on average, the white-sounding names got callbacks for interviews, um, got opportunities uh, that the black-sounding names did not have, and, and that's even though all of their credentials are exactly identical. So, so, so to me, it, that uh, completely cuts across, you know, uh, Candace Owens and some of the older folks, Thomas Sowell, Shelby Steele, um, some of those folks who propagate uh, that position. So do you think the answer is white people giving their kids black people names? <laughs> or, well, I think what white people would say is black people need to stop naming their kids black sounding names. No, I think there should be blonde haired, blue eyed kids from uh, Orange County, California named Lakeith. And, and, you know, and DeAndre. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. But the, here's the crazy part. So when I was in law school, when I was in law school, one of the things that uh, law schools really promote is of the whole notion of everyone's equal. And so instead of having mm-hmm. your name, everyone is assigned a number. And so you take your exams and you provide the numbers and they're, you know, they, that's done to make sure that there's no bias that's in there or you try to take it out. Nonetheless, when the grades came out, I mean, still oftentimes kind of still fell on the same kind of curve as if the professors had known who was who. And so, so, so it's really, it's, it's a very difficult thing. I think we still need to strive for to, we need to work really hard to take away all of these markers that uh, define people um, in a way that where everyone kind of comes with a whole uh, litany of character traits uh, with it just because of one's name or, um, you know, um, or whatever else. So I wonder if uh, the current situation with the with the, the current health crisis of COVID-19, I wonder if everyone being in a mask has has affected the psyche of America in any way. Um, because, you know, typically there are there are certain cultural biases and racial biases that we're talking about where um, people have, you know, implicit and explicit biases about people that they see out in public. Um, and, you know, the idea of someone being trustworthy or, or someone, you know, who's it, it's rational to be fearful of someone given a certain context. But I wonder if everyone being in a mask has altered that in some way, because now everyone has a layer of, I think, 
rational distrust to them because everyone is their faces are covered. So I wonder if I wonder if that's done anything in in large part. You know, uh, I'd love to talk to some kind of like social psychologist or something, somebody about this because I, I I do think it's interesting now. Like everyone is kind of on a little bit more of an even playing field in terms of like <laughs> who you should be rationally, uh, you know, paying extra attention to outside because everyone is, their face is covered, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's an interesting thing. And I'm sure there's some, some social scientists has already started or got to get funding to do that study. Do you think, uh, uh have you ever seen the movie, uh, a scanner darkly? I haven't seen that one. No, it's with it's from like uh, the early two thousands. It's with, uh, Robert Downey Jr. And Keanu Reeves. It's kind of like a, um, it's it's kind of it's almost animated. So basically, they shot the movie as a regular movie, but then they animated on top of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that movie, it's kind of like a a near future kind of uh, dystopian future where um, the cops, like all the cops, wear um, these masks that are constantly shuffling through faces mm-hmm. uh, of all different ethnicities, all different cultural backgrounds, so that uh, you you never know. Um, at least from the police side of things, you never know like what the real identity of the cop is. And you also don't know their ethnicity. Um, and so any, so you, there's no like perceived, you know, racial or cultural bias coming at least from the public side towards the police officers. There isn't the same thing for like the public to wear, but I just think that's an interesting, interesting idea. Yeah, I do too. It, it reminds me a little bit of, of uh, Watchmen, the HBO. Yeah. Did you watch that? Oh man, I watched it numerous times. Did you like? You loved it then. I loved it. Yeah, I, I, it was super fascinating. I, yeah, I went all in, and I'm not like a superhero type of person, but I thought the social commentary in it was quite fascinating. John, I, I loved the series, and I, and I, I evangelize for it. Like I, I tell people to watch it. Um, I think, uh, I think you and I, you should come back on, um, in, in a little bit, and we'll do another episode devoted to Watchmen and really deep dive. Um, so, so just because um, this this is normally functions as like a comedy entertainment podcast where we do talk about um, pop culture and things like that, um, why don't you give me sort of your broad um, your broad your broad sort of reaction to Watchmen as a series, uh, maybe to entice people to have you having you come back and do a full episode on it. Oh man, um, I, I, there are so many components of that movie that I thought were interesting. One was the police wearing the mask uh, mm-hmm. so that they are unidentified. Um, this whole notion that there's um, these two kind of powerful forces out of the world that are impacting, and we mm-hmm. don't always know which one is good and which one is bad. And, right. and we don't know how to determine what is good or bad because certain actions that one group or, or, or that we can think this is good, but the effect of it is negative, which is, and I don't want to, for those who haven't watched it, don't want to give too much away, mm-hmm. but just certain things that happened throughout the series that were supposed to be for the purpose of kind of rebooting society had this detrimental effect on society. <laughs> right. I, yeah, I think the show ultimately is a commentary on power, and 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 that, and that theme is like is is throughout, and it's it's so funny that it's it's a show about superheroes, quote unquote, but uh, <laughs> the power that's often talked about or dealt with is is not even superpowers it's 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 the powers that you know authorities have over you know subjects it's the power hey, i love the idea that you talked about like these two you know these two superpowers that like they just 
it's not as if it, I think it is also a commentary on religion in some ways. Uh, and and the uh, the actual graphic novel, I think, uh, maybe even more so. But it's a commentary on religion with the idea that, like, there are powers that are operating. And to us, when, you know, the less powerful it may seem like there is malice or intention behind it. And sometimes there is uh, in, in the show. But for the most part, it's just powerful entities operating with their own motives and their own sort of agenda. And the aftermath, we, we can read into it as much malice and as much intention as we want. But oftentimes it's there's little intention towards the less powerful at all you know what i mean it's more so just and I, I thought that was i thought that's a very interesting it's a very interesting um notion and i think most people would i don't know i think most people would read that as like as a criticism of like a religious worldview and maybe it is but i honestly haven't thought of it enough uh we should we should definitely do an episode on it i think you i think we'll enjoy talking about that yeah that'll be a lot of fun that'll be a lot of fun okay john do you do you own a gun no. Okay. Now, why don't you own a firearm? Um, I am personally afraid of them. I've, I've, I've had cases when I was practicing law where uh, family members accidentally, sh like kids accidentally shot themselves because they found their parents' gun. And so, um, so for me, that's kind of anchors more there than, than other kind of other reasons for not having a gun. Okay, so there are um, there are voices out there that say that um, not only should every American own a firearm, but it's especially imperative that uh, people of color own firearms to, you know, protect themselves and be free and, and things of that nature. I've always had a problem with the idea. I, I personally don't like guns either, um, but I've always particularly had a problem with the narrative that guns are a symbol of freedom in the country. I've always taken issue with that. Um, I know the Constitution says that we have the right to bear arms and we're free to interpret that, or at least the <laughs> Supreme Court is free to interpret that um, however they see fit. But the, the notion that comes along with the idea that owning a gun it, it makes you free, uh, more of an agent, more of an American, I, I've always had a problem with because I just feel like there until until all Americans, regardless of color or social economic status, are treated um, equally, um, we'll never enjoy the same benefits uh, of freedom or power that that are promised by the Constitution. So I've always had an issue with the idea of guns being a symbol of freedom. Um, so what do you say to the voices that say that um, people of color should own guns and, and, and things of that nature? Well, um, cynically, I say that if every black person had a gun, there actually would be, uh, be gun control laws enacted. <laughs> right. uh, back in, in the 60s, when the Black Panthers took guns, which was allowed during that time in California, and you were allowed to go into a state building with your gun as long as you complied with certain rules, uh, one of the most conservative presidents of at least our time, Ronald Reagan, made sure that uh, the state Congress enacted uh, gun control laws in California. So um, so I yeah, this whole notion that if everybody had a gun, things would be safer. I, I just disagree with it, because if you look on a larger scale, there's countries that have weapons and yet we still have war. And, and so so I don't I just don't think the one follows the other. So for me, I think that this the notion 
I think that the guns in America and guns being synonymous with uh, sort of American values and American freedom is another one of those things that uh, comes out of this notion of whiteness. I think it, it speaks to the need for white Americans to 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 find identity or defined value in external sources. Um, and and it, to me, it's just the gun as a symbol of freedom is sort of um, is a symptom of that. And so any, any, you know, I think there's an issue when any sort of, uh, you know, ideology, not ideology, or like any sort of identity is born out of, you know, opposition. I feel like it's bad news for those who don't choose to um, fall into line to that, that sort of um, identity, because just merely existing, um, for a lot of people, you know, in opposition to a certain um, identity is, you know, is is grounds for for those with that identity to, you know, exert some kind of force over those people because it, it's you, you get where I'm getting at. I don't know. No, no. Yeah, yeah definitely. No, I, I you're right. I mean, anytime you need something external to prove that you're better or that you have something becomes problematic. I mean, if you just look at kind of the, you know, commercials, like every commercial tells us that what they're selling we need. And if you don't have it, that there's something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. Guns are problematic on a lot of fronts. Um, and, but, you know, there we have a Supreme Court that has ruled and interpreted guns to be um to be allowed and that it's supposed to be a right. Um, and But there's a lot of other um, studies and just people who, who definitely really are way, way, way smarter than me who um, kind of attack this issue on why guns are not, why they're harmful for society. But again, having something that you need that's external to protect yourself is the type of society that says that we need to be protected instead of it, it's it's more of an othering type of society rather than a society right. that says let's let's kind of practice the beloved community that that Dr. King and others have talked about. And th- and that's and I think ultimately that idea is the reason why I don't own a gun is more so I don't I I feel like I'm choosing not to play the game that gun ownership requires you to play. Um I think philosophically owning a gun is is making a statement about your view on society and and your view on your fellow human beings uh, that I just I don't know. I just don't feel compelled to play. Now, I'm not I'm not naive in the sense that I'm sure there are certain contexts I think an existence in America is layered and there's a lot of different layers that go into your your context that make up your environment. And I can easily imagine an environment where maybe the algebra would work out differently and I would feel much m- more safe uh, if I owned a firearm in, in my in my house. Um, I just given the context of where I am and I just I just don't feel that it's worth buying into that narrative because i mean essentially what it says to me is that um ultimately the people within my community are and and i mean to not even talk about the uh the you know the second amendment implications of owning a firearm but let's just talk about for personal protection i think it, it, the the narrative that you're putting forward or that you're buying into is that ultimately ultimately the people that are around me are not trustworthy and and I'm I'm going to need to defend myself from somebody, 
and I'm entrusting my need to do that and my ability to do that into my ability to either be more armed than the other person or to be better equipped to use my firearm than the other person. And I just think that ideology doesn't scale. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree with you on that. I mean, there's so many different ways to address this particular issue. And so, um, yeah, I, I, that your last point is very well taken that. And I, I think the same problem is I, cause I think the same narrative that owning a gun, uh, buys into is the same narrative that, uh, allows police to murder people in the streets. Honestly, like it's, it's this idea. Cause all right. So for me as an individual in the United States, I, in my personal opinion, there are several, uh, you know, if not hundreds of layers of, so let's say, let's just call it protecting myself that I can do before I get to um, being in an arms race with everyone around me. There's, I can choose to live in a certain neighborhood where statistically there's not a lot of violence or violent crime or anything like that. I can, you know, um, take certain precautions about how I operate in the neighborhood. I can get to know my neighbors. I, there's a, there's a lot of layers that I think, uh, would drive your likelihood of, of quote unquote, needing a firearm down. So statistically low that it doesn't even, it wouldn't even be a compelling argument for, for anything, let alone owning a firearm. Uh, and I think there are lots of those steps that most Americans, not all that most Americans can take to insulate themselves from, from being uh, of a high statistical uh, likelihood of needing a firearm that you can take before you even get there now, but it's easier to say, well, I'll just buy a gun and then I'll be, I'll be fine regardless of the context because I'll have the ability to use lethal force if needed be. It sounds great. Um, but I think that same, uh, pathology, I'll call it, um, is, is what police officers take into their job. There's, there's a million things police departments could do uh, to insulate themselves from becoming, from entering a situation where there's a statistically high level of likelihood that they'll need to shoot somebody or to, you know, to kill somebody in custody or whatever. But it just becomes simpler to put your trust in your firearm or in your ability to, to use violence and, and force against somebody. It just becomes easier and simpler to say that, well, you have a gun or, well, you have mace or, well, you, well, you have a knee, you know what I mean? I, instead of taking, you know, all the precautions necessary and, and invest in the community and, and, and do all those things that are not as obvious and may take a lot more time. Um, it may not seem as, you know, um, explicit in their, in the, in the, in the, the ends that they're trying to meet. I think it, it's the same, it's the same, um, guns provide the same shortcut, whether it's an individual or, or, or a cop. And I just, I just, I don't know. I just don't feel compelled to play that game. You know, I agree. I agree with you on that. I definitely agree with you. And, and I think the other countries have shown that there are ways to, uh, to police communities without using deadly force and without yes, using guns. And so, um, and if you look at our own country, if you go to certain communities, the police do use other mechanisms and methods, um, rather than deadly force. Yeah, totally. Totally. I want to be respectful of your time, uh, I, but I just want to like, uh, while I have you here, just want to ask you a couple of questions and you can kind of just on, on, on the hot seat, you can just kind of give me your, your quick response. So if you, you're, you have the magic button to change things in the United States tomorrow, um, who would your ideal presidential candidate be? And it doesn't have to be someone who, who has run for president. It could be anybody. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> 
That's a great question. I hadn't even thought about that one. The ideal candidate uh, to run. And you can describe what, you know, what the candidate should be like. And then if someone comes to mind, then go for it. Um, well, I, I think some of the characteristics that our last president had, Barack Obama, which is um, the ability to talk with other countries, the ability to be uh, thoughtful and methodical in your decisions, I think is, is, is incredibly important for a presidential candidate. So instead of mm-hmm. like saying someone, these are kind of the characteristics that I would uh, appreciate. Also, uh, a president who has the ability to, uh, to, to seriously be concerned and ready to act on behalf of marginalized communities. And that's mm-hmm. not just black and brown communities. That could be poor white communities as well, where they yeah. say, hey, we need to have a society that um, that truly does have a baseline um, level of care for every single citizen in this country. So those mm-hmm. would probably be like the main character traits for that I would look for in a uh, presidential candidate. All right. So let me let me throw some people at you and you can say you can say yay or nay. This is going to be fine. Go ahead. All right. Uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Nay. (laughs) You care to say why? Yeah, I I just don't think he's I mean, I think he's an well, I think he's a popular actor and he's great (laughs) at the roles that he takes um he appears to be a very compassionate person but he wouldn't be somebody that i'd want to be president (laughs) Mm, okay Okay. um oprah yay yes yay okay what you care to say why yeah i mean I mean, i think she's thoughtful um i think she you know she started all these book clubs and not just kind of stick to one genre she thinks she she thinks a lot um and she's compassionate i mean some of the topics that she took up when she had her you know television show and even with her network um it's clear that she looks to um at least try to help marginalized communities so so yeah um, Kamala Harris. Ooh, no. This is interesting because I think uh, you, as someone who practices law, I think would have an interesting opinion on this. Because a lot of the criticism that I hear from Black people about Kamala Harris is that she was a district was she district attorney? Yeah, and she locked a lot of Black people up. So what what is your opinion? What no, is your I mean I th- I think because I think she played um. She helped to perpetuate the type of policing in this country that's detrimental to communities of color and poor, and I will always continue to add this, and poor white communities. Mm-hmm. So, no. What about Willy Wonka? Is Willy Wonka <laughs> um, Willy Wonka. The Oompa, the Oompa Loompas. Um... <laughs> um Nah, I didn't like the movie. <laughs> you don't like the movie? All right, hey, either fair, version. Man. I didn't like either version of the movie. The, the whole hey, notion G. that one person could get a ticket and that uh, to the exclusion of everyone else is problematic for me. <laughs> but it was completely random, though. It was random, but still. And somehow they was all white, too. Well, yeah, there's that. But <laughs> if this guy is as rich and wealthy as he is, why just one kid? <laughs> 
That's true. That's true. I get it. I get it. So it perpetuates. Um, I can t- now. I got, I got my thing. So it, t- it tends to perpetuate the same kind of notion that some folks have that if laws are fair on their uh, on their face, that if you just try hard enough or if you're lucky enough, um, that you can you too can make it. And I think it still cuts across or cuts against this notion of we want to have the entire community to be um, to have a baseline support system. All right. If there was one law that you could implement in the United States tomorrow, what would that be? Oh, wow. One law that I can implement tomorrow. And assuming everyone would follow it perfectly. Okay. Um, Full employment. Full employment. What does that mean? So so that everybody has an opportunity to have a job. That that in a, in a job that creates there has the potential for someone to have um, to have dignity in the work that they do. If you could, if you could be in in a movie playing any ca- character or person from history, who would you play? Oh dear lord! Um, oh okay, so probably there's a couple characters: Marcus Garvey, uh-huh. um, Ralph Bunch. Who who was a an ambassador for the United States? I think his negotiating and his um, his uh, dispute resolution skills were unmatched to any other ambassador that we ever had. So, as as an attorney, what what kind of law did you practice? So, I practiced uh, real estate litigation, and then I moved into um, estate planning and estate litigation. So, I you know I dealt with families fighting each other over. Teacups. Uh, yeah, really, it boiled down to like really small things. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> so in like the in like the law in like the law is are there like like, oh, yeah, that's my favorite lawyer, man. He's good at this. Like, is there things like uh, you guys it, within that profession in the practice of law? Are there like rock star lawyers and like people who are really good? Like, oh, absolutely. Really? Oh, man. Th- there's who some, some of- who are some of your people? Well, I, I think what happens what happens with law is, you know, the, the only the only attorneys that get, you know, some shine are the ones who take on high profile cases. And so right. you kind of miss out on just some really, really skilled uh, men and women who are just fine, fine excuse me, fine, fine attorneys. And so I, I don't know that I can like name people that <laughs> that anyone would really know. Um, uh-huh. But so so but the one that, you know, who when I was in law school, I looked up to was Johnny Cochran. When I was in law school, um, he had just uh, finished the OJ trial. But OJ did it, though. <laughs> so I'm gonna tell you something that's really funny. Come on, John. I think. Wait, 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 wait. Listen, listen. I think from a generational perspective, I mean, for a lot of African Americans my age and older, um, that trial was more than just about one individual um, person, whether or not he or right. she killed another individual person. It meant a mm-hmm. lot more based on issues of race. And the fact that his lead attorney was also African-American um, mm-hmm. played into it. And the fact that the judge was Asian-American uh, was a factor. Sure. So so there are a lot of factors that went into that particular case. Um, but I think if you really gave a lot of older African-Americans, like, what what is it, um, truth serum? 
they probably yeah. would say OJ did it. <laughs> oh, yeah, he did that. He did that. <laughs> John, it has been a pleasure, man. I appreciate you coming on the show uh, and talking through some of these things with me. You're a, uh, you're a smart brother, and I uh, uh, appreciate you being in my life. Um, we should definitely have you back on, and we'll talk Watchmen. I think that'd be a lot of fun. That would be a lot of fun, and thank you so much for inviting me onto your show. This is this is the I've done a bunch of podcasts, but this has probably been the most fun. Uh, where uh, where can people find your work online? Yes, absolutely. You can find me on Instagram um, at prof p r o f j dub. That's J A Y D U B. You can uh, find me on Facebook, John Williams, or even on our webpage, uh, madeforfellowship.com. All right. And you can find me uh, at uh, San the DJ on social media. That's at, at A-H-S-O-H-N, the DJ. And you can find me uh, at Asan.com, my website. You can find more episodes of this podcast at weeklyregular.com and weeklyregular on all social media. John Williams, thanks again for joining me. Uh, we'll see you next week.